Kia ora e te and welcome to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment, a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building. Join us as we delve into personal stories about inspirational career journeys for people in design and construction, as you too build your own story. Hello, I am your host, Ralph Titmus, a member of the NZIOB and its Young Professional Advisors Group. I'm currently working as a project manager for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade. My background is in architecture and procurement, and I now find myself delivering diplomatic projects around the world in a very uncertain environment. Over the course of these podcasts, the NZIOB will be showcasing upcoming talent and established names in the New Zealand construction industry who have contributed to its development. Our first guests for this inaugural episode are Ben Jagersma, Anna Farrow, and Guy Marriage from First Light Studio. They are an innovative and envelope-pushing architectural practice from Wellington who started their professional lives following their success in the 2012 Solar Decathlon. So, without further ado, over to the First Light team to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Anna. Um, Yeah, I've been part of First Light since the beginning with Ben and Guy. Uh, We started back in 2000. And 12, First Light Studio, um, and I guess we're going to tell you the story of how that began later on. Um, hi, I'm Ben. <laughs> um, originally from, from Taranaki, um, moved to Wellington for university uh, when we started, 2005. Um, yeah, did uni. Still here. Established First Light. <laughs> Never left. Never left. Nice. Um, I'm Guy Marriage, so I'm... Uh, I've got a few fingers and a few pies. I'm a lecturer, a senior lecturer at Victoria University, and I'm a director at First Light, so I'm sort of the backroom boy. So we're just three of of five, so there's also Nick and Eli who are not not here, not present. Just want to check with the team in Christchurch. I'm working on my sexy voice. Is it working? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Is it deep enough? (laughs) Going to go any deeper. I, yeah. It is a really nice voice. I found yeah. myself drifting off when you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what my, that's what all my students say. Oh, I'm just yeah. So I wonder if we now can circle back to Victoria University and just talk a little bit about your studies. So understanding you did your Bachelor of Architectures, so finishing up in sort of 2009? 2009 was the final year of our five-year bachelor's, yes. Yep. Yeah. It was actually in our final year in 2009 where it all started. Um, we would we were just basically just doing an elective course, which was was based around the solar decathlon competition. And one of the assignments was a, a group project. Um, so the the four of us, Anna, myself, uh, Nick and Eli, were put together randomly. Um, we'd gone through university together, so we knew each other. We weren't, um, you know, su- super tight. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and basically designed a, a small solar-powered house for, for the assignment, um, just a mock project really, um, with no intention at that stage to entering the competition and going down in this wild journey, which we've, we've been down the last um, 10 years plus. How did you actually transition from what was a mock project to something that was suddenly a very practical project? Was it a smooth journey or was it a little bit bumpy to sort of suddenly go from, oh, this is a paper project to we're building this overseas? Um. It was fairly smooth. I mean, we we presented we presented the project and and basically the question was asked. This is this is a really neat house that you guys have come up with. Should we give it a go? And the the first step was just the university supporting that question and putting in an application to the U.S. Department of Energy. 
Um, there was probably over 100 entries at that stage. And basically, it was just a written proposal. It wasn't too much about the design itself, but just a commitment from the university that should this happen, we can make it happen. Um, it's from from that initial written application that we got we got shortlisted into a wider bunch of university teams, and at that stage we then then it was about the design. Um, this was we'd finished by that stage and came back in our summer um, to basically do a design competition. Mm, that was in the new year, so we had to um, develop our design that we'd submitted. We we really only explained our design in the first entry, and then we had to put some panels. It was like a competition competition entry at the time. So we put panels together and made a little model and sent that over. Yeah, our first uh, our first go at prefabricating a, a small building and sending mm. it overseas. <laughs> I, I remember even back then, the uh, lecturer involved, he recommended that the team went forward. And so the, the board said, okay, we'll support them. And sort of started from there. So could you maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, who is in the team, how many people were involved, and what was it like to compete? So I understand there were there's no engineers, so it was uh, solely architects. There was engineers as well. Oh, cool. There's a couple of couple of quite um, quite good engineering universities in the US. So it was a combination. Um, there was a bit of a coup, I guess, why we when we took out the engineering award as an architectural university. <laughs> <laughs> Is that maybe why you haven't been invited back? Well, no, we, we have. They, they they were very keen for us to come back. I mean, it was a huge. Massive. Um, ma- massive undertaking, but I think... Yeah, yeah, well, I don't think we knew what we were getting into at the time, so it, you just take it day by day and mm. task by task. Which I think was probably a good thing mm. that we didn't know. It did take a massive team beh- behind us, so the four of us quickly grew to um, a large group of students from different faculties across the university. So there's a lot of cross-pollination of ideas. So not just the architecture school, we had students from the building science school helping with the, the, the performance of the building. We had interior um, architects interior and landscape architects. architects as well. Yeah, quite yeah. an undertaking. It was interesting because it started with the four of us and, and looking at the tasks ahead, we're like, righto, we need a bigger team. And um, we were really lucky with Guy because um, he tailored one of his courses to the the sol- of three of his courses to the solar decathlon um, construction papers, and from that we actually recruited a whole lot of students, which is really cool. And um, I guess we took leadership roles in different aspects of the the competition and the house, and so we ended up having teams of students working with us. We were lucky that well we, we had the university behind us. There's a lot of you know a lot of knowledge and skill there. Um, we had a, a big workforce of keen and eager students who recognised the opportunity that they had. Um, but we also had a significant support from the industry itself. Um, and we, we, I guess we did learn how to ask for help. Um, and there is a lot of amazing knowledge in Wellington and New Zealand in this field. Um, and um, a lot of people were really, really happy to help um, and whether that's just in expertise in different fields or, um, yeah, give materials in kind. Um, and it, at what was actually quite a difficult time in the industry after the, yeah, GFC. The GFC and, and, end of 2009. Mm, yeah. But, for example, like Fisher and Paykel did a whole R&D session on, on some of their appliances to, to maximise them for the competition requirements. That was amazing. Oh, that's really good to that's hear. Right. We had uh, one of our students was her name. Her name was Elmore, and the head of product design at 
Fisher and Paykel was Mark Elmore. And so there might have been a, a you know a foot in the door there that he said, mm. right, let's really get behind this. So yeah, we had the whole might of Fisher and Paykel um, sort of backing us. But I think I think you sort of got to understand that this the opportunity that this gave us, this was huge because most of the people doing the solder decathlon come from neighboring states in America. And so it, it was set in Washington. And so people would drive over the border from Maryland, which is literally the next state. So it's, you know, two minutes drive. Um, University of Maryland won the competition, but, you know, the, all of the neighboring states were sending their houses and they literally, they could go home each night and stay at home in their flats and things. We had to send our, we had to send our project from New Zealand all the way across to America and then bring it all the way back. So it's actually the most well-traveled house ever in the whole history of the earth. Um, it's the, you know, the, other people have sent houses halfway around the world. Nobody's taken it around the world and then back again. And it's, you know, it's been re-erected for the fourth time. So, you know, our, our building is, is uh, the, the project scale was just so huge. Um, and the fact that under the project rules, it all had to be done by students. So staff had to sort of stand there and say, you know, we're not involved. This is, we'll back you up, but this is a student-run project. And so these guys didn't know that it was near impossible. So they're just like, okay, right, we'll do that. <laughs> but the so. timing was was different for us too because the shipping, we had to factor in that. So it was two months on, on the sea. Mm. So I think we had to send it in June. I think it was June for for it to arrive in time for the competition. So it was it, it was different because I suppose other teams were working right up to that competition date whereas we sort of had a bit of downtime, which was an advantage, I think, in the mm, end, yeah. but it, it, it was tough. It made all of the deadlines much tighter for us. I want to take a step back, actually, because I, I guess we've jumped into talking about the, the decathlon and the competition, um, and it's just, I mean, it's second nature to us. Um, but I suppose for the podcast, the Solar Decathlon, um, it had been run in Washington, D.C. for five competitions before us um, and it's a competition that runs over two years and it's for it shortlists 20 university teams and they have the two years to sort of um, research design and build a house and then run it as a like a prototype or a um, a case study house on the national mill in in DC up until then I think it had mainly been um, university teams from around the US that's sort of part of Part of the reason we were called First Light, um, first team from from the Southern Hemisphere, first country in, in the competition to see the sun every day in a solar-powered competition. And, you know, our intention was to get on the podium. And you did so. Third, or, third overall, correct? Third, yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah, That's a pretty fantastic achievement. It's like a, a bronze medal in the Olympics, really. I mm. mean, the solar decathlon is the Olympics for architecture students. No, not not for the for the big muscly running jumping people, but for the for the smart brains um, who sit behind a, a desk or a computer all day long. So it's it's a big deal in America. It's the biggest student competition, student architectural competition in the world. Well, the cool so. thing is you get to be on the tools a bit as well. In in that the year that we were there, they started a European solar decathlon. Um, so they were in alternate years. So it's a two year competition. So it culminates in the the exhibition, so that's one year, and then in the European, the one was in Madrid, I think, I went to research the the teams over there putting their houses up at the time, and then there was also a China um, solar decathlon, so there were th three different solar decathlons around the world now for, for students to join in. 
This episode is proudly sponsored by Jib Plasterboard, your local plasterboard manufacturer. Jib Plasterboard offers a wide range of training programs and technical help for lining installation, fire resistance performance, noise control, wet area systems, and rigid air barrier solutions. Please call the Jib Helpline team on 0800 100 442 for technical support or register for a training session at jib.co.nz slash training and events. Going from competition as students straight into practicing as architects, that must have been a pretty interesting change. It was just an obvious transition. We we didn't um, we didn't really talk about it until after the competition. We went traveling together um, around the states, and um, the while the house was set up in in Wellington here on Frankett's Park, um, the university kept a register of people that were interested um, in the house or that type of. Um, building, I guess, as a w- way that they, to, to, to sell the house essentially when it came back to New Zealand, um, which we got access to when we came back. And so that database of people essentially became our first, our first clients. Um, potential we, clients. Potential yeah. clients. Yep. And some of them we, we managed to, to convert. I mean, when we came back, um, we, we had this, all this knowledge and um, around zero energy building, we had this very specific set of skills around um, essentially prefabrication or um, how to construct a building in one place and move it and construct it in, in another in a very quick time frame. Um, so those two kind of um, sets of skills, when you come back to New Zealand and you've got an affordable housing crisis, which is has gotten even significantly worse since when we first came back. Um, we, we wanted to, to try and put those skills to work and see how we could kind of transfer that knowledge um, and create a, a business that could um, build better quality houses for more, for more New Zealanders. <laughs> that, was, that was the intention. That was the yeah. intention, yeah. So we wanted to create something a little bit more than just a traditional architectural practice as such, um, create something that... Um, yeah, made a difference, I guess. And the reason that we do that is because we're creating homes for people, for families, and and the minimum standard that New Zealand has at the moment is far below where it needs to be. And what it creates is the situation that we're all in as renters, we have got cold, sick, mouldy houses. Mm. These houses, we want to be healthy and, and guaranteed healthy, you know, that we can stand by them and, and say we, w- we would want to live in them as well. Um, and then, and then ultimately, that's going to use less energy over time, um, which you know has has the the added benefit of of impact, uh, reducing our impact on the environment. Which um, we, as members of the construct industry, have a real responsibility. Um, mm. And and size is a big thing because um, you know I think from the nineteen sixties till now, the average house size has doubled in New Zealand, and we want to reverse that trend um, because bigger isn't better necessarily, you know. Um, we'd rather focus our, our um, all of our energy and <laughs> all of the house's energy in smaller, more meaningful spaces than a whole lot of sort of rambly corridors or, you know, extra bedrooms that don't get used unless the, the rally comes once a year. So we really try and um, 
it's almost like distilling the house into its really um, key parts and then focusing on really celebrating those in terms of the performance and the architectural experience. Yeah, We've been keen to uh, sort of, you know, death to suburbia and, and death to the corridor as well. So the corridor is just wasted space and you see most New Zealand houses and, and builders seem to delight in building little corridors with sort of 45-degree angles and all these sort of weird design features and things. It's just completely wasted space. So we just design out the corridor completely. So there's no corridor. There's the living room and there's bed- bedrooms and the, you know, things actually are really tight um, and every inch, every square millimetre is used uh, for storage wherever we can. So really thinking cleverly about about places for things so that we don't have wasted space. And that brings the whole overall size of the house down and that brings the cost down. And the, and the key is designing it so it doesn't feel tight. Mm. Um, we did a little house um, in Wellington several years ago now, um, and I think it was 82 square metres, um, and it was, unfortunately, the client had to put it on the market later on, and the real estate agent didn't tell people how big it was until they left, having visited the house, and she would ask them what they thought it was, and most of them thought it was getting close to 100 square metres. Mm. Their perception of the space was bigger than it was. So that, yeah. was, that was awesome to, to realise. So thinking about your leadership journey, which you touched on previously, in your opinion, as emerging leaders, what's the, the most important characteristic? We talked about you bringing people along the journey with you, you know, so helping them along in their own journey. But if you had to narrow it down to the thing that you like to focus on personally as a leader, and that's putting you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> Hmm. I'll let Anna start this one. Hmm. <laughs> just hmm. as you eat a mint. Just one, 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 quest, one word. That's hmm. a tricky one. Um, I reckon optimism is probably one of the key qualities. Um, yeah, have a belief in in yourself and your employees and your your team, hmm. and that things are possible. Okay. Ben. It's difficult to nail it down to one. I mentioned earlier, I, I really think, or when I when I think about leaders that inspire me, um, communication is, they're all very good communicators. I think that's really important for a leader, um, both, um, you know, communicating your, your vision for the world, if it's, if it's, if that's, if that's important, but also, um, on a more practical level, communicating um, how something might be done. Um, but I think as being a leader, um, teaching is really important. Um, and so all good good teachers um, have an ability to be able to um, relate to to the people that they might be leading um, and, and communicate in a way that's easy to understand and um, clear. Interesting to hear from you as well, Guy. So you know, when I went to university, you, know, you lectured me for many years. If you had to narrow down what is the well, your salient points of leadership skills, what would you try and what, how do you try to distill that down to the student body? I guess my um, my take on it is is don't take things too seriously. Um, I always try and approach things with humour so that students you know students get very wound up and, and very excited about things that they don't need to get excited about. Um, and they get stressed and full of anxiety and things like that. And actually, you know, we're here. We're not here for a long time. We're here for a good time. So, you know, have a, have a great time while you're doing it, you know. <laughs> and that's the ethos of, of yeah. First Light is that we're going to do some great buildings and have a great time doing it. 
Yeah, I think it's an important point to note. I think working with people you enjoy and working on things you enjoy is probably more important than working on the biggest building in New Zealand or the craziest project here. If you can get satisfaction and find people you like working with, focus on that. Mm, I would agree with that. It's all about mm. people. Yeah, We've got the, the luxury of um, our, our four key directors at, at First Light, um, Nick, Ben, Eli and Anna. They're all incredibly good-looking young things. Oh. And, <laughs> I, I think that, that you know, they're full of this um, bountiful enthusiasm, and I think that that's actually taken them a long way. So when we were right from the start, you know, nobody wanted to hear from me, some crusty old fat bugger in the corner. They're like, no, let's get, let's get those young ones in. Let's have those young people talking to us because they're so dynamic and they're so full of enthusiasm and because Ben's the guy that will never say no and he'll just say yes to anything. You know, that, that, that sort of enthusiasm for the whole project um, really brought us along. I don't know if they're aware of it. But, but, you know, they're, they're absolutely lovable. It's like having a, a, a box full of puppies, you know. They're, they're just <laughs> racing around licking each other's ears and things like that. You know, it's all, <laughs> <laughs> wow, this is for, yeah, a little bit of an insight to what happens yeah, in the studio. Uh, you know, uh, studio yeah, probably a bit yeah. of editing there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we do. We, we glad do. you said ears. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah not, the, not, not the same letters in a different order, no. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, we do genuinely enjoy what we do. It's really important. Um, yeah, we have these these big dreams, and sometimes it it, it can be difficult, but um, we do really enjoy it, and that's really important. We have a good time at, that our clients have a good time and a good experience because it is a stressful time in their journey going through designing a house, designing their dream house. Um, might be the only time they do it in their lives. Um, so we we do have a lot of fun with the industry being so small. People and connections are very important. And I think along with that is professional organizations. So I'm presuming that you're obviously members of the NZIOB, um, the NZIA, NZIOB, those professional development organizations that offer these opportunities to catch up and, and further those networks. How much importance do you think they have on people's early careers? Because I think they're fantastically useful ways to, to meet people and get your name out there and start to understand the industry a bit more. I think it's important, um, not only in your early career, um, it's a really good thing to keep keep going to. And um, it's funny because it is a small industry in Wellington. You recognise lots of faces. Um, but it's, yeah, it's good for ongoing professional development, um, going to the conferences. Um, and it's just great to see what's what's happening around the country and around the world and to be able to, to share that with your peers. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and it's something that we encourage with our staff as well. So we, we offer all of them um, a professional development fund that they can use as a part of their contract in, in, in whatever field of research or that they want to get into, whatever activity. Um, and, and we encourage it. If, if they want to take time off the studio to go and go to a particular conference, then I think that's really important. Um, and, and important they get there and they get amongst it and and catch up with people that they wouldn't have otherwise talked to and just share ideas. and Yeah, like you say, just get amongst it. Yeah, get amongst it. Yeah, there's some cool people in Wellington. The industry is full of uh, wacky people like Guy. And... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment, a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building.